Hello, romantics. Welcome to A Pod to Be You, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mather, and each episode I'll be chatting with a guest about one of their favorite romantic comedies from classics to modern hits. My guest today is Jason Schultz. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thank you so, so much for being here. I'm very, really excited to talk, uh, talk with you. Uh, would you like to introduce the film for us today? Yeah, sure. Uh, today we're watching 1997's As Good As It Gets, uh, written and directed by James L. Brooks, starring uh, some unknown actor named Jack Nicholson, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's some big things coming for him. Um, Helen Hunt and Greg Kinnear, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s in there, and a handful of other people, actually. So Yeah, I mean, it's like a really great cast. Um, I mean, with those four, and Shirley Knight is in there, and... You're Lee Smith. Um, yeah, it's uh, uh, Skeet Ulrich is, uh, is and a, there. And a brief Jamie Kennedy, Kennedy appearance yeah, too. Kennedy, so, yeah. you know, you know, it's the well, 90s when. I mean, there are a lot. I mean, there's um, there are a lot of like really famous people doing like really small roles. Like Lawrence Kasdan is in there. Todd Salons is in there. Um, I think there were some other names that I saw in the credits that I was like, oh yeah, that person. I think. James L. Brooks is one of those guys where he can call up his friends and they're like, and he's like, hey, just come do a, two scenes for me. And they say yes, because he's like popular. He's, he did Terms of Endearment <laughs> and other things. So yeah, yeah. calling those favors. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you ever remember the first time you saw As Good As It Gets? Uh, kind of. I mean, I, I believe it was on video. I don't know if I saw it in theaters. I was, I was about 17 when it came out, so I was interested in it, but I'm sure I was single at that time, like most times. So I probably didn't have a date. I don't think some of my dudes wanted to go see it at that time, but I do remember I did rent it, uh, at least when it came out, because it had a big lot of buzz, and I think by that point it was already nominated for a whole bunch of awards. So... Yeah, it's probably on video. I think I was maybe even working at the video store at that time when it came out, so I probably got it like the day before, which was nice perks. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think for me, this is one of those movies that was just always on TV, like, you know, on TNT, TBS, USA, all those channels. Um, <laughs> and it was one of those movies that I just have a lot of, I have a lot of like vague memories of like little parts of it. Um, and cause I, I know that I've, I mean, I've seen it, I feel like I've seen it like a million times in the nineties and two thousands, but, um, I remember when I watched it as an adult, this is back in college and this was in 2000, I want to say 2008, 2009. Um, I was so like surprised by how good it is and how it, it's actually like, I mean, you know, when you see a movie piecemeal on TV over, you know, five years, you don't really get a sense of what it's <laughs> like as a whole. But seeing it as an adult back then and having watched it a couple of times since, and I watched it um, for this recording, I mean, it's a really, really good movie. 
It's it's yeah. a strong film. I mean, yeah. I, I get, at the time, initially, people were surprised that it got so many nominations and wins. But then when you think back, I mean, it's it's not the type of movie now that might be nominated, but the performance is also solid, and it's just written well, and it's just it's it's a really well made, strong film, and yeah. it's just it, yeah, it, it hits you. I mean, I have a lot of different feelings about it, you know, good and bad. I mean, overall, I love it. It's a great film. Yeah. And it's just a lot of things it talks about. Yeah, it's it, it's not the, your typical type of romantic comedy, though, either. It's not just like, hey, you know, guy meets girl and something kind of stands in their way. It's, it's more characters, actual, you know, people that you might not always see in movies. So. Right, right. So let's get into it. Uh, what are some of the things that really speak to you with this movie that have you returned to it? And, that like, why did you pick it for our episode today? Uh, well, well there, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, the main issue is, I guess... I remember watching it back in the day and it was about, you know, a writer who's got some severe OCD. He's he's a bit of a dick and he kind of has to try and redeem himself and has a love story with Helen Hunt. And I mean, back when I first watched, I didn't really have a lot of strong OCD tendencies. I had a few that I wasn't sure what they were. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I was 17. So over the years, it, it's grown stronger. I've been diagnosed. I've had a lot of issues. I've had a lot of struggles back and forth with it. So I know a lot of the ups and downs of how how you can control your life, how you can kind of control it, and how the, you have to kind of make concessions for it. So I wanted to kind of revisit it, especially for that, and to see how it is and to see how it can kind of affect trying to, you know, be with people, trying to make friendships, trying to make a relationship, because I've kind of had some of those similar issues in the past dealing with my own, you know, aspects of OCDs. So, yeah, it's there's a lot of similarities. I mean, everybody's issue is different. I mean, I can go really deep into it, I guess, and, you know, it depends how far we want to go into the whole conversation. But, yeah, mm-hmm. that was the main reason, though, was because I haven't revisited it since the beginning and because it is about somebody with OCD trying to kind of better themselves, I guess, and make themselves lovable in a way. And he's a very unlovable character. I mean, he's he's a, he's a jerk. He's a horrible person in the beginning. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that was one thing that I was really um, curious about with this movie uh, and how it depicts uh, OCD um, and whether this movie felt like a caricature or insensitive. Because to me, it seemed, um, I I don't think I'd call it, I wouldn't go so far as say it's insensitive because I think it's it's coming from the right place. And I think... um, you know, Melvin is a fascinating character, even beyond his obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, it, the performance isn't just a series of ticks or, you know, anything that's too insulting. But, you know, I don't have any experience with that disorder. I don't know anyone with it. Um, in you know, I, I haven't grown up with anyone with it. So, you know, I don't want to speak for anyone that might be having that disorder or might know someone or any experience with it um because to, i mean to me it felt like a very um like respectful and, and nuanced portrayal of it because um it it felt like it was a um the same you know part of his life not something he had to like conquer or defeat or overcome you know yeah no i get what you're saying and yeah it did it was quite respectful in a lesser actor's hands it would have been all large movements it would have been a caricature it would have been yeah. more mo- mocking yeah. uh but no it i mean there was a lot of aspects to it i mean that are very similar to me like there's the moment where he has to take them to the hospital in the cab ride and he's trying to pull his jacket over his hands so he doesn't touch the cab doors and that was that's kind of me a lot of time out in public i mean there's a lot of 
we don't want to touch things, touching things have germs. And so there's a lot of that aspect of it. He wears gloves a lot. He does the excessive yeah. washing. Um, the locking the doors is, is very common. I mean, sometimes it's a certain amount of times I did it like he does. Sometimes we just stand there locking and locking, locking and locking until it feels right. OCD is all about being content and something feeling comfortable. So you get the compulsions. You do things over and over again or a certain amount of times until your brain's just like, okay, now it's okay. So then you can relax. Mm-hmm. But you're also always self-aware of it. So you're kind of angry at yourself because you know what you're doing is not logical. So you're kind of talking to yourself on one side of your brain saying, this is you know crazy. Stop doing this. While the other side of your brain is just shouting at you saying, no, it's still not locked or your hands still aren't clean and you can't touch this. So it's kind of, you know, half your brain's trying to gaslight you while the other half is like, well, I can't seem to fight it. So you have to find that balance where either it's controlling you or you're living with it. And for the most part, he was living with it. I mean, I just want to say it doesn't excuse him being like a racist or homophobe or an anti-Semite. That, that's not part of his mental illness. Right, that's right. just – so I just want to say, you know, having OCD doesn't suddenly make you that person. doesn't make that, hey, that's okay. He's got OCD. So no, so that's not part of it. But yeah, um, there's times when I was in really bad shape in the past where I – did something I called like T-Rexing. So I'd, I'd walk with my hands like right up close to my chest, like like mm-hmm. a little T-Rex hands so that I wouldn't reach out and possibly touch people out in public. So similar to him walking through the crowds, he did it in a little more dramatic way because he was also avoiding cracks. But so there's right. things like that. You get people looking at you thinking you're weird, but you don't really care. I mean, you do, but you don't as long as, you know, you're comfortable. So it yeah. makes you it makes you a selfish person in a way because you're always in your head and you're always trying to make yourself comfortable and content so that your brain will calm down. So unfortunately, it, it will make you quite selfish in a lot of ways you want to do things. It's, he needs to have his breakfast done a certain way exactly. He has to have certain utensils. So it can be hard on everybody around you if you know, because you're like, well, I need to do this my way or I'm going to kind of like freak out or be uncomfortable. So that's why it can also be hard to have be friends or have a relationship with anybody because they don't want to just give in to you too much because that doesn't help you but they also can't fight back too much. So they, they have to find that balance of pushing you out of your comfort zone, but not too far. And, but yeah, because sometimes you get too lost in your head and you can see that with him at some points where he is being a little too selfish. And then Helen Hunt's character will kind of call him out and he sort of snaps out of it. And he's like, Oh wait, I'm going too far. I'm saying this stuff or I'm being too, yeah. too OCD. I got to take it back a notch and be like a regular human person again, kind of thing. So yeah, it was a really strong performance. Like I said, seeing it so many years later when I've had my own struggles, it was like, wow, okay, I can totally see a lot of myself. Not the exact symptoms, not the exact compulsions, but some very similar ones, or you can see why he does them, even though there's no logic behind it, but you can understand that that's just kind of how the brain unfortunately works in these situations. So. One thing that I found so fascinating, I mean, you mentioned the people around him having to find a balance, you know, of what of how to live with him, and and that's something that's realistic as and authentic as well. I found that to be an extremely fascinating part of the film uh, because you know it feels like almost the first hour of the movie is scene after scene of people calling him out on his behavior and. Um, you know, it's like they are alienating him because of his, you know, of his uh, symptoms. But he's also alienating everyone else because of their, because of his symptoms. And um, and I found that it was fascinating to see people make these, like, figure out where to make these concessions. You know, Helen Hunt. You know, as much as she will call him out, but she'll also let things go. And she found her own balance with uh, interacting with him and. 
also began to see him in a new light and was able to appreciate his symptoms rather than fight against them all the time. And he found ways to, you know, interact with her and with other people in his life um, and like let them in. And, you know, so I like I really love that this movie takes the time to develop these relationships so that we can see that balance and we can see people making concessions for each other, both, you know, both Nelvin and and Helen Hunt's character, uh, Carol and Greg Kinnear's character, Simon, like everyone's just trying to find the balance of their relationship. And I found that to be really, you know, uh, it felt authentic to me. It felt uh, compelling for me to watch. You know, I love how, I mean, we, you said earlier, this is more of a, you know, a character study uh, more so than a typical romantic comedy. And I really appreciate that this movie takes the time to get these three characters in you know, a confined space for a majority of the film so that they can bounce off each other and, you know, figure out their relationships to each other and, like, what they can allow, what they can't allow to happen. And, you know, I think that's why this movie is so successful because you have these three characters who are constantly, you know, redefining their relationships to each other. Exactly. And like you said, I mean, there's some real moments in it. One moment that's kind of stood out, it's just a brief thing, was near the end on the phone when Melvin says to Carol, he's like, I wish I would have danced with you. And she just has a sort of, she makes a bit of a sound, a bit of a reaction, and she's like, okay, it hangs up. It just seemed like more of a real person reaction as opposed yeah. to, you know, some big dramatic moment that most rom-coms would have. She's just kind of like, okay, you know, okay, bye, kind of thing. But you can see it on her face that it's it's a yeah. real reaction to that sort of comment which was nice and yeah it, it, creating the characters it, you know it's not just a meet cute they don't just you know hang out one time and fall in love um and i think there's a nice progression actually with the melvin character because I, I believe early on even though he's doing these sweet things like he hires the doctor for a kid mm-hmm. there's still that that selfish aspect to it because initially it's it's so she'll come back to work Right, like like right. he like he like he says to her later on, he's like, "You relax me," and that's a big thing with mental illness, especially with OCD. We want to find what uh, something that relaxes us, or that'll calm our brain, that'll make us comfortable. So he found that with her, but initially it's just so he he's like using her as medication, so he'll get obsessed with her, and she'll become a compulsion. So he needs her and her his life all the time to make him relax. So he'll do all these nice things, but they're for his own benefit. But then I think that changes in the restaurant when yeah. when he mentions the pills and he's like I, I started taking these pills so he knows that he needs her around but he also knows at least that he has to improve himself to keep her around so at least he is putting in that effort to be a better man yeah. which some people wouldn't do they would just stay selfish they'd be like no I need you stay in my life I can't lose you and he's like okay well if I don't want to lose her I at least actually have to do this one thing I hate which is try and become better so he does make that little bit of that turn at that point where it's like okay he's become it still has selfish motivations, but it's at least I got to do this for her as well because I can't just keep messing her life up and being mean to her. So I like that sort of bit of growth. It's not like a huge full redemption because, I mean, he's he's still a horrible person. He doesn't get that full redemption arc, but we do kind of still like him because we know he's probably pushing these people away. I think he's being extra rude to people because he knows that they can't be with him. So I think he's purposely sabotaging any personal relationships. By being, I mean, it doesn't once again excuse his racism and homophobia, but he's, I think he's cranking it up to 11 as a way to push people away as well because he knows that he can't have them around them. He's not comfortable with people. Yeah. So I right. think part of that's also him being like, okay, I can maybe tone that down. I maybe I don't actually hate everybody. I just 
was scared of people in a way. So I think it's more of this natural arc where he's like, okay, I'm going to start working on myself, but I'm still kind of a jerk. But I actually really do love that this movie is all about these small steps. And even in the end, you know, when he, he makes this, I mean, beautiful speech that I think anyone would love to hear. Uh, but it's still all about him. And, um, you know, she, the, I think a common theme in the film is that she keeps asking for compliments so that, she, you know, she wants some kind of acknowledgement that it's her as a person that he needs and not just, like, her effect on him, right? And um, he gives her this speech that is so romantic and it's still about all about him. And um, but in, she accepts that because she's, she can recognize that this, is a, th- this might be a small step for her or for us in the audience, but it's a giant leap for him. And, you know, for him to, you know, um, think about her in those terms, it, it's a sign that, you know, he does love her for her and that um, he has noticed everything that, she's, everything that she's done for him and... He has noticed her as a person, as a woman, as a romantic partner, as a friend, and that um, she's not just a, you know, a stand-in or a cardboard cutout, you know, she's a real human being. And um, it's, but it's so great to, um, I think it's really important for movies like this to be a little bit more about, like, small steps versus, like, huge, like, changes. Like, Mm -hmm. if you were to have a sort of big redemption and he's apologizing to, you know, to Simon or or to anyone else and being like, I'm not going to be racist anymore, I'm not going to be homophobic anymore, whatever, like, I think that would have been satisfying for the audience maybe, but it wouldn't have felt true to the film. It would have felt, like, a little too manufactured. And to have him you know, take these small steps into becoming a better person and, and recognizing the self-sabotage, as you mentioned, like, I think that to me is more impactful because it's, it's more, it feels more authentic. I don't think people like wake up one day and aren't, you know, they don't, you know, they're not, they're, they don't change overnight, but, you know, he might change over the next couple of years in their relationship, you know, I mean, I love that this movie doesn't end with them getting married or anything. It just ends on a like a first or second date or whatever. They're just walking down the street together, you know. Exactly. No, I completely agree, and I think it's it is about those small steps. And just like in real life, it's sometimes it's more about actions than words. Yeah. So him, for example, just having Simon have a room set up in his place all of a sudden, as opposed to you know going through this big heartfelt apology, being like, "Sorry, I called you all those horrible names and yeah. said all that." things to you it's like okay well here's a place for you to stay so they don't really mention it they're just like okay we get it and i mean simon knows it's a big step he's not going to dive into it all and be like well okay this means so much to me and it's just more like real life where it's just like you know you can say everything you want but if you don't back it up with the actions it's it's pointless anyways so maybe just jump jump to the actions and do it that way and there was this moment that really stuck with me especially right near the end after that moment was when he's going to see her and he goes to the door and he's like oh i forgot to lock the door yeah. Which which doesn't seem much, but I mean, they've made a big point of it all the time. Every time you open and close that door, right, he locks right. it the three times. And for somebody with OCD, that's a big thing because he realized, well, she kind of distracted my brain and he realizes I don't need to do all these things. And that's kind of a big thing to fight a lot of OCD is you kind of need that sort of ammo. So if your brain's yelling at you, no, you got to lock it. And you can be like, well, no, look, this time I didn't and I didn't die kind of thing. I was fine. So it kind of gives you evidence to fight your own brain. And when you can kind of 
get out of your own head and you know start hanging out with somebody or be socialize a bit and like you said you just get out of your own head and get distracted it's it's one big way to fight it so you have to kind of be with somebody that'll push you past those limits and just not allow you to always be focused on your little issues on your compulsions which if you're staying at home all the time like he is doing as well like a lot of us do when we're in that issue all we're doing is trapped with ourselves and our thoughts and so we get trapped in these routines non-stop so when i've gone out there as well and did a bit of dating here and there it it just opens you up because you have to you, you can't be that restrictive with everything you do or touch and say with another person or you'll never see that person again so you immediately have to realize okay i gotta i gotta find this compromise i gotta find a bit of a happy ground in between and if that person just automatically makes that click in your head that it feels right then yeah i mean I think that happened with him first and then he realized, okay, I got to maybe get to know this person. So then he started hanging out with her more and realized, okay, it's not just her making me feel relaxed. I actually do have feelings for her. So yeah. I think it initially was just like, that's why he was selfish versus like, oh, she makes me feel good. I just want to keep her around. But then he realized I can't just do that. So then he started to look at the rest of her kind of thing and realize, oh, she's actually, you know, she's a great mother. She's, you know, this person that challenges me. She doesn't let me get away with my, my crap. And I actually really like her as a human being. She's not just, a, you know, human form of therapy for me kind of thing right yeah yeah um and i mean i really i I really do love the uh their relationship and just how much she just doesn't let him get away with stuff and um you know she sees through the self-sabotage um and uh you know i really um i really love how this movie is about someone who is unlocking all these, uh, all this compassion and empathy and, you know, desire for human relationships, you know, like, I don't th- I don't even think that Melvin is aware of how much he longs to have people around him and how, like, how good a person he is, like, deep down. Um, and I think he has this, like, narrative around himself that, like, you know, he's gonna say what's on his mind, he's racist, and he's controlling, he's demanding... But, you know, um, I think even like even if he is saying that his actions are selfish and there there are to an extent, but I also think subconsciously he wants to be a good person. He wants to keep these people around. You know, everything that he agrees to do is, um, you know, when he agrees to drive Simon to Baltimore, I mean, it's like he does it out of pretty much the goodness of his heart because there's really, you know, I think he cares for Simon on some level. He cares for Carol. He cares for Spencer. Like, he cares for all these people in his life. And um, I think he's slowly coming to terms with the fact that it's not just selfishness. It's not just, you know, therapy, as we're saying. It's actually, like, wanting people around you and wanting to get to know the people in your life. Exactly. I think he's yeah. he's he's secluded himself for so long because he is an older person. I think he's been alone for so many years that he's convinced yeah. himself this is what I like, this is what I need, and so like I said, he does that self sabotage where he keeps pushing people away on purpose because he also he's afraid of germs, he's afraid of touching people, he doesn't doesn't want anybody or anything in his apartment. Like when the dog first goes in there, he's like nobody's ever been in here, sort of thing. So he kind of gets freaked out, but. Yeah, I think it, actually the first big step was the dog. He realized that, okay, this is okay as well. I can have this dog here. I can open up to this. And it, it, I think it kind of clicked the light on inside him. He's like, well, I actually have love to give. And so that kind of allowed him to open up to people as well and realize, okay, maybe I am lonely, so maybe I want 
more than just you know myself and my life sort of thing and he kind of kept going from there he's like okay maybe i've been you know convincing myself for too long that i don't need anybody that i don't care about anybody and he sort of kind of let that deep down buried away heart kind of you just you know open up and be like oh wait you know life can be better i guess at this point you want to dance well i've been thinking about that since you brought it up before and no at this place they make me buy a new outfit they let you in in a house dress i don't get it what wait what? no wait why where are you going now, why i mean i uh i didn't mean it that way i mean you gotta sit down you can still give me the dirty look just sit down and give it to me pay me a compliment melvin i need one quick you have no idea how much what you just said hurt my feelings. The moment someone gets that they need you, they threaten to walk out. A compliment is something nice about somebody else. This is a request from June. Now or never. Okay. Happy anniversary. And mean it. Can we order first? Okay. Um, the two hard shell crab dinners, pitcher ice cold beer, uh, baked or fries. Fries. One baked, one fried. I'll tell your waiter. Waiter. Okay. I got a real great compliment for you, and it's true. I'm so afraid you're about to say something awful. Don't be pessimistic. It's not your style. Okay. Here I go. It's clearly a mistake. I've got this, what, ailment. My doctor, a shrink that I used to go to all the time, he says that in 50 or 60% of the cases, a pill really helps. I hate pills. Very dangerous thing, pills. Hate. I'm using the word hate here about pills. Hate. My compliment is that night when you came over and told me that you would never... Um... um all right, well, you were there. You know, you know what you said. Well, my compliment to you is the next morning I started taking the pills. I don't quite get how that's a compliment for me. You make me want to be a better man. That's maybe the best compliment of my life. Well, maybe I overshot a little because I was aiming at just enough to keep you from walking out. <laughs> <laughs>
speaking of the dog, I, I do want to talk about you know the relationship with both the dog and, and with Simon because I I think Simon is like such a fascinating character um, as a character and also his relationships with um, with Carol and with uh, Melvin because um, he also is. Um, I think he's struggling with self-pity and self-sabotage after his after the the robbery and and his hospitalization. But um he's so like I mean he has a line that I found to be so um so touching. Uh he's like I feel so sorry for myself I can't even breathe. I mean that really that really hit hard. I mean that felt like I mean we've all we've, we've all been there, right? And um he also is someone who, you know, is kind of okay in his like dwelling on his problems and he kind of needs someone to you know take him out of that and it somehow turns out to be Melvin and turns out to be Carol as well and you know I love how much he opens up on the trip and you know I really love one of my favorite scenes is when he's talking about his relationship with his parents in the car and Melvin keeps interrupting with his own backstory and Carol just completely is like you know, shut, like shutting uh, Melvin down and you know forcing Simon to actually voice his 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 problems and to get deeper and not let someone like Melvin or his father, um, you know, kind of barge in and you know uh, steer the conversation back away. And it seems like that was like the first time that someone actually like listened to Simon. Um, and um, I really felt that was a, um, uh, yeah, I really, I, I mean, I really love the, the road trip section of the film. I think that's the strongest part mm-hmm. because, like, again, we have these three people who are, you know, learning about each other. I mean, they're virtual strangers, but they are, like, really getting along. And I think, um, I think Simon, too, is able to see past his own, you know, bias against Melvin. You know, I think he has... I think he has a like story around Melvin and you know, he's seeing him in a new light. Um, and you know, having someone like Carol kind of be the buffer between them is, uh, you know, really, um, really great character dynamic for the three of them. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, I think the whole Simon character, it makes this movie once again, raises it above your regular rom-com type yeah. level. It makes it much more character based. I think there was maybe an aspect of, uh, Simon's father that he saw in Melvin probably like this real hard ass guy yeah. that kind of hates me he's tough on me he doesn't support my lifestyle and I think that was even early on that also tainted Simon's view of Melvin initially as well because he was probably yeah. picturing him you know he's, there's this hateful father figure again that's giving me a hard time and I think when that sort of kind of opened up a bit and same within the car like once again Melvin was trying to make it all about him and just like I'm sure his father was always very controlling and domineering as well. So that's when Carol stepped in and said, no, this is your time kind of thing. You know, Melvin shut up and Simon was able to open up. And I think even though in that moment Melvin didn't really pay attention to it, I think he really did hear the words and kind of realized, well, okay, this guy's actually come from, you know, a lot of pain as well. And I think they're all broken people and they kind of realized that they're broken. I think it sort of works, you know, with, with the way the title is of the movie and that, Jack's line in the therapy office works in two ways. Where he's like, what if this is as good as it gets? Like, what if this is all it is? We don't have to improve. But then yeah, he, yeah. he realizes actually we can get better. But also, you know, if this is as good as it gets, let's let's embrace it. Let's live life and enjoy this and let's make the best of it as opposed to just settling for whatever sort of sadness and broken aspects we have about ourselves. And, yeah, so let's live it up 
if this is as good as it gets, let's make it worthwhile kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's kind of what that road trip is too. It kind of opens them up. They just kind of, they can relax and have fun until he kind of ruins it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I really do love the parallel between Melvin and Simon's dad. I mean, it's he, the uh, James L. Brooks almost recreates um, Simon's uh, his, like, his that incident with his parents because you have him drawing Carol nude and um, uh, Melvin walking in and having sort of a similar blow up about it. But um, I thought that was a really interesting parallel. But I think the difference is that um, you know Simon's dad saying don't ever come back home, and Melvin on on the flip side is welcoming Simon into his mm-hmm. home and uh, saying like you know you actually like you have a place here and I, and. I yeah you know, I think this movie is um, really in some ways a lot about belonging. You know, people who, you know, we talk about in romance movies like, um, you know, people that belong together. They're destined for each other. But it's also like where you belong is also something you create for yourself. You know, and mm-hmm. you just kind. Of, I mean, in New York City especially is a place where people find their own. You know, little families. They find their own. You know. Um, havens and uh, they create these spaces where they are with the people that love and appreciate them and um, I'm sure I mean that's not that's not unique to New York obviously but this is such a good New York movie because of that (laughs) and you have these people from like different economic backgrounds who are just like thrown together and they are um, you know they find a way to live together even if they're not you know compatible on paper no, oh, for sure, and I think that's what it's kind of all about. It's it's about these connections and just accepting people as they are, and finding where you belong in life. Yeah. And in a way, that's kind of what he he's doing with his mental illness. It's trying to find a way to be comfortable, but not just in his head now, just in real life and letting people in and opening it up. And yeah, it's he like said it's it's a fascinating little character study. I mean, yeah. Um, I where, just, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I'm just, it kind of, I still kind of have it percolating in my brain sometimes. So sometimes I'm just like, yeah, I, I'm still kind of blown away by how much it, it affected me and hit me rewatching it. So, yeah. Um, where are you on James L. Brooks, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, um, or as a, you know, creative person? I mean, well, first of all, I mean, I've, I've grown up with Simpsons, so his, yeah. <laughs> his hand in that has you know, shaped my entire life. Right. I, I've seen a few of his films. I know I've, I've watched Terms of Endearment, I don't know, probably 15 years ago or so. I watched it, and I can see, I guess, how important it was, I guess, to people. I mean, it's, it's a pure tearjerker. I mean, it's like, let's manipulate the audience as much as possible. And it, it works. I mean, the performances are great in that. And I, I saw Spanglish, and I've seen a few of his movies. Did, uh, did he do Broadcast News, I think, as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah. so I saw that many years ago as well, which is good. He always makes these character-driven movies. They're not like these huge laugh-out-loud comedies, but they have some really funny moments, but they're also more nuanced. They're more kind of grounded. In, in, I guess, you know, just these little character moments. And there's a lot of realism with the people in his movies, it feels like, which is kind of nice. So, Yeah, yeah. He's one of those filmmakers, um, like, he kind of reminds me of, like, a Cameron Crowe or uh, Rob Reiner, where they have these, like, brilliant careers in the, you know, 80s and 90s and into the thousands, and then they just kind of, like, drift off. Like, I watched... Um, uh, last year I watched uh, How Do You Know James L. Brooks's I think that's his okay. latest movie with you know Reese Witherspoon and Jack Nicholson okay. I actually think it's Jack Nicholson's last movie I believe um, and uh, uh, Paul Rudd and Owen Wilson and it's just like 
it tries to capture what as good as it gets and broadcast news in terms of endearment does, which is like these, you know, uh, really psychologically acute character studies in the guise of a, you know, mainstream romance or drama. Um, and it just doesn't quite get there. And I think that's partially because like, we just don't see movies like this anymore. You know, I mean, you were saying earlier that like, this movie wouldn't be nominated for an Oscar if, um, or Oscars when it, if it came out today. I mean, I think it would be like a Netflix show, honestly, mm-hmm. um, if it were to come out. And, you know, um, also this movie was a huge hit, right? Like, it yeah. made a lot of money. I mean, it's one of those movies that were just, like, playing forever in the theaters back in, in the late 90s. And even then, if this movie were to come out in theaters, it would not make that much money. It would probably play at, you know, select theaters and then go straight to, you know, Netflix or Hulu or wherever. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, this is the, I mean, this is just the kind of movie back in the day that, was, I mean, you know, I was eight years old when this movie came out, so <laughs> I don't know. But this just feels mm-hmm. like the kind of, like, you know, adult adult-oriented, you know, emotionally intense and funny, but not too broad kind of comedy um, that is just, like, went out of fashion in the 2000s. And, I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I'm a big James L. Brooks fan, especially, you know, the, his three main films. Um, and uh, it's really... Um, yeah, it's just a little disheartening that even he can't recapture the magic that this movie had or broadcast news has. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it sort of has a vibe of an indie film with a large A-list cast. Which yeah, yeah. It was kind of this thing in the 90s. I mean, you could make these, you know, almost like independent movies where it's just, you know, a bunch of dialogue. There's nothing big that happens. It's just people hanging out or talking. And it just kind of depends on what your cast or budget level was. It was either considered indie or, you know, a studio film. I mean you compare this to something like Chasing Amy, I mean, yeah, they're similar right. in the fact that it's just people talking about relationships. It's just, you know, the budgets are millions of dollars apart. But that was also a very big thing in the 90s as well. People loved having a lot more dialogue-based character stories that, you know, weren't dramas, weren't as much comedies. There's just this kind of in-between area that just people enjoyed still watching on the big screen. It was kind of nice. I mean, yeah, yeah these days yeah. you can't get that on the big screen. Even the biggest name directors, I don't think it put something like that on the big screen. Spielberg probably couldn't even make a movie like this and get it out there. He'd have to go to like Netflix or Amazon. Right, right. Um, and what I find fascinating about this movie is how much it, it, like the structure of it is so, it's like a weirdly structured movie in that it feels like it has like four or five acts to it. <laughs> you know, you can't, I mean, you can kind of separate it and like, you know, like oh, there's the beginning and the road trip and then the end, but it feels like there's, um, it has a vibe of being like kind of without like shapeless, but instead everything is kind of like it just looks that way. I feel like it's a really structured movie. It just has this very loose structure to it, which I I find to be really uh, really interesting because it doesn't follow that you know typical Hollywood three act structure. No, exactly. It feels more like life, I guess, where things yeah. kind of just happen to you happen, here and there, yeah. and there's there's not really you know a defined series of events that will go on in your life it says okay well now you know we're just doing this and there's this side thing that's happening and then we kind of focus on great Kinnear's character for a bit where he gets beaten up and he's doing his art and then it kind of once again moves back to Jack and Helen Hunt and her kid and then their date and so yeah it's it's not like yeah they meet they fall in love they fall out of love and they fall back in love and then you know that's the end of it kind of thing because yeah I feel like there's like 40 minutes of it that would not exist in a movie now (laughs) like it would start and then they would like 
find some contrived way to get them on the road trip and then because the road trip feels like the like sort of the what would be like the act two of a, of a more standard movie I, I think these days most most studio execs would also cut out the whole simon yeah plot yeah, and character sure. almost as much or he'd just be you know he'd be the comedic you know sidekick yeah. that has yeah. a few lines here and then the building but they'd cut all that out which you know rips out a big heart of the movie i mean it just wouldn't work what i do like is the fact that at the end i mean it is a romance they're together but it's maybe not guaranteed i mean i could see it a few years down the road where they're not dating but they're just really good friends like the yeah. three of them are hanging out so they help support each other you know they eat uh, they eat dinner together hang out but maybe they tried the romance thing and you know maybe the age thing got in the way or he just couldn't you know, adapt too much to being a romantic person but they became like these best friends. He's like a father mentor figure to the two of them. And they yeah. just become this kind of this triangle of strong friendship. I kind of like that there's maybe that possibility built into it. Cause you're still not sure if she's really into him. She's kind of into him. She likes the sweetness. They kiss, but she kind of still looks at him and she's like, okay, well, I'll give it a chance, but you know, maybe, you know, we just, you know, hang out and I'll keep him in line, but yeah. he might be too much of a, a jerk for me to really, really love for too long. But I can, right, you know, because right. you can have these love stories where they just fall in love as friends too in the end. And it, it still kind of works. And it's this sort of sweet, you know, story where they're all lifting each other up in the end. So I kind of like that there's that possible and, chance know, to the, it. I mean, that's the magic of broadcast news, right? Is that mm-hmm. it doesn't end with Holly Hunter getting with um either or right she is just they just yeah. become friends and you know they can't work as you know neither couple in that love triangle can actually work so they just stay friends and i think that's something that i find that's like the be- one of the best parts of broadcast news and I, I i like that this movie also does something similar where you know romance might work out might not work out but these three have this friendship that is really valuable to them what about Helen Hunt? Like, were you watching Mad About You during this time? Like, I, I was. Uh, I mean, I was. Yeah. I was in my teens, so I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like you know, you know, sitting down watching it all the time. But I, I watched a lot of sitcoms growing up. I mean, I was a TV nerd, even yeah. you know, in my teens. So I'd watch Friends. I'd watch Mad About You, and yeah, I'm a huge Twister fan. Like, I, I love Twister. I think it's one of the the best '90s movies you can get. Yeah, it's, yeah. And, and her and Paxton are great together. But yeah, no, she's great in this film. I think this is arguably probably the best performance she's she's given. I mean, I haven't seen some of her stuff like the Sessions from a few years ago where she was nominated. So I don't know yeah. how strong that is. But I mean, she's fantastic. She she's I guess the heart of the movie. Where without her, it doesn't work. Like if she was over the top too much, or if she was you know like some people say, oh, she might be too screechy, or she might be too you know pixie dream girl like some yeah, movies yeah. like that. She's just a regular, real person. Like, I've met people like that in my life, you know, just a single mom trying to get by. You know, she's tough, but she's not, like, you know, too hardcore. She's not too far over the edge tough. She's still, you know, she's soft. She's emotional. She's nuanced. She's she's a real person and character. So I think without her skills portraying all those different emotions, it just it would have fallen apart, so... Totally agree. Uh, I, I really like Helen Hunt. Um, agreed with about Twister. I think it's like, <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's like one of the best kind of 90s action, you know, blockbuster type movies. And um, I, I find Helen Hunt to be so fascinating because I, I feel like back then there was such a divide between TV and film, especially someone doing a network sitcom like Mad About You, which I believe Mad About You was sort of the like more upscale 
version of Friends. Like that's how it was seen. It was like more um, like yuppie, I guess, or more yeah. like it was it was Jewish Friends, I guess, in a yeah, way. Yeah, with Paul Paul Reiser, and he was seen, I guess, as more of a uppity. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, like like Fraser watched... like Fraser to Cheers, I guess, in a way. It was yeah, more, yeah. This is a little higher up. So I I remember watching Mad About You when I was little. And that was another show that felt like I watched a lot in reruns, like on summer vacation. Uh, but not only was she in movies at the time, but she, I mean, she won an Oscar in the height of her Mad About You time, which I, I think is so rare. Even I mean, I, I think now like a hit show and a hit movie would work together to create some kind of narrative at an award season. But I think back then, like for someone like Helen Hunt to go from being a sitcom wife to Oscar winner and movie stars. So um, very unique to her time period, but I really can't deny that she is brilliant in this movie. And I think she strikes the exact right balance of being this very, sweet dream girl who's like you know so um you know willing to be the you know someone that you know brings this you know cantankerous guy out of his shell but with some kind of edge to it so she's not some like doormat who accepts his abuse and wants to change him um and i think her reaction shots are really quite amazing uh you know, I I always say that, you know, you can have a really great romantic speech at the end of a romantic comedy. Um, and, if, you know, if the actor delivers it well, then, you know, it'll it'll be really successful. But you really mm-hmm. got to get that reaction from the from the actress uh, because like that, that's going to sell it. And I think her face in that last scene is so just like luminous and she reacts with like surprise and shock and you know she's um so just so bewildered by something so romantic coming from someone who said she was wearing a house dress when she was dressed really nicely <laughs> um like someone who insults her as much as he as praises her but uh yeah i mean i really love her performance here i mean she's so relatable too and she's so just like you know like she does that julia roberts beck ryan thing you know where it's like they're so stunning and they're such movie stars, but like they also feel like your next door neighbor. You know, it's that Sandra Bullock thing as well, where it's like, how is someone so gorgeous, you know, so like relatable and approachable? Exactly. It's, it's like this real world gorgeous. It's, it's the yeah. type of person you could run into at the grocery store. You wouldn't think, oh, they're, they're a movie star. And that's, you know, that's not a knock on the way they appear. It's just, it's this. Yeah real beauty that they they possess and they have this personality and this charm that just kind of exudes out of them and i was also gonna say yeah that last scene with the reaction was great and the restaurant scene too the different emotions she had to play up and down in that restaurant scene was just it was brilliant i mean where she first gets offended so she needs the compliment then her reaction to the compliment and then like two minutes later her reaction when he says, well, I thought maybe I could have you sleep with Simon and change him. And the way she just <laughs> flips it on and off. Yeah. And it's like, and I mean, the way he goes from sweet to just complete jerk within yeah. like a sentence. And it, so they're all playing off each other. Just you know, supremely. It's, it's great. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a balancing act because yeah. different actors would have played things way more extreme, way more over the top emotions. Like I could see, like if they had someone like Jim Carrey, who I love, if he was playing the Jack Nicholson role, it would have been all, 
over the place, yeah. all overacting. Even Robin Williams might have overplayed it. Even though Robin Williams is great at drama, he still might have gone over the top with a lot of the different types of, you know, histrionics, the the different compulsions. So you need someone like Jack who is not known for like comedy or drama. Like he's done both, and he does both at the same time in a lot of movies. Like I mean, like we I mean we touched upon Jack Nicholson a little earlier, but. I feel like I cannot praise him enough. He's one of my favorite actors, and I mean, duh, like everyone loves Jack Nicholson. But like going from you know the seventies into you know the end of his career, like he is just so like he just has this like movie star charisma that he's able to um, exploit, but also hide away when he's you know in you know like he doesn't feel like Jack Nicholson all the time. He gets he gets into his characters, but he still has this like. You know, Matt, this sort of like movie star, you know, charisma to him. And um, yeah, I mean, I really love his performance in this movie. I mean, it's, it's hard for me to pick a favorite um, because he's been in so many great things like The Shining and Chinatown and Something's Gotta Give and. Um, and a few good men with this classic. A few good men. Yeah. Right. Hand, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just like. I'm not surprised that he won an Oscar for this movie. I mean, it's such a it's such a nuanced performance. Well, even I think in terms of endearment, I think he won one of his yeah. best supporting actors yeah. Oscars for that one as well. And then it's a totally different type of character again, too. Yeah. And so I can you know, I can see why he likes working with James L. Brooks. Is some yeah. directors will cast an actor for the same thing they bring each time, but sometimes they'll cast an actor. It's like okay, well, you're going to play a completely different character each time yeah. around. And yeah. Jack, I mean, Jack has this larger life persona in real life. You know, he's Jack. He's cool. He's got the sunglasses on at the Oscars every you year know. when he goes there. But when you see him in a movie, it's not just he's not just playing Jack. I mean, there's there's every once in a while it comes out like that little bit of coolness, that slyness, that grin will come out and yeah, he'll say yeah. a line like when he says the line, you know, I'm drowning here, but you're describing the water to me. He's like, okay, that, that's a Jack line. <laughs> yeah. So that that's cool. But I mean, for the most part, he's not playing Jack Nicholson, which is nice. And so he yeah. can kind of get lost in that. He'll bring it out every once in a while. He's like, hey, still forgot I'm a movie star, so I'm, I'm still Jack, but I'm going to play this character for 98% of the time. Yeah, I mean, the collaborations between Jack Nicholson and James L. Brooks, I mean, I, you're totally right in that they're doing different things in, in each movie. Um, and, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson, you're right, he has that sort of, like, sly movie star thing, and it's like... You know, I'm I'm watching this movie and I'm like, you know, there's so many like he has so many like homophobic lines and racist lines and stuff and I'm like I should be offended and I should be like you know, I'm gonna you know, I was like, offended in a way. Yeah. I was like, This is even offending me here <laughs> But at the same time I'm like, you know, it's Jack Nicholson, like you know, he does it with that little like twinkle, I think, where like I don't think he even means it. I think I mean you're right, it's that it's self sabotage, it's keeping people at a distance. And he plays that so well that I'm like, I can't get offended by what he says because, like, he's playing it with that, like, that little, like, winking to the camera and also with this, like, um, really compelling character thing of, like, I need to keep everyone at a distance because they're not, you know, that's my, that's just how I I am. And you can really track his... um, his sort of emotional connection to these characters and to the dog. Uh, and it's like, I love that he's still himself around these people. Like, he doesn't ch- totally change. And, you know, the parts of his character that are, you know, Melvin and the parts of it that are from the OCD, like, um, I think he plays both of that really, 
well. And uh, I mean, it's like this is such a movie star role for uh, like one of our best movie stars mm-hmm. of the era. I was going to say with the dog, I think one of my favorite parts is when he's walking him and the dog starts jumping over the cracks and he picks him up and he's like, don't be like me, just be yourself. So, yeah. so he knows that I'm not a good person. I'm a sick person and I'm not a good person. So yeah. please don't, please don't emulate me. I'm not, you know, a hero. I'm not somebody that, even if it's a dog, I'm not somebody you should try and, you know, aspire to be. Yeah. So just keep being yourself. You're a good dog. So, and I think that was just kind of a nice self-aware moment where, like I said, a lot of the time in these, even these OCD things, we know what we're doing is logical and we can't really seem to always control it. So we don't want to see somebody else do it as well. Cause like, well, no, don't do what I'm doing. That's just crazy. You know, <laughs> just keep doing yourself and don't get stuck in my little rut kind of thing. So and I thought yeah. it was just a nice little moment for him where he puts his little gloves on first to pick up the dog, even though he loves <laughs> his dog. And later, later on, he's not having to wear gloves to pick up the dog either, which is kind of a nice little small touch that people might not notice. But, you know, he lets the dog come close to him and be with him in bed and, you know, kiss him on the nose. But early on, he's like, no, i got to put these plastic gloves on because these germs. So yeah, just- yeah. You know, it's like dogs are, do- I mean, any animal, it's such a cliche thing to be like, oh, the animal likes that person. That means they're a good person, you know. Like, um, they always say, like, you know, you can always tell a lot, a lot about a person, like, with how, like, dogs especially treat them. Mm-hmm. And, but I feel like in this movie that, um, that arc is so, is portrayed so well. And it's like, that's our first, I mean, you're right, that's our first indication that, like, he is actually a good person underneath all of his, you know, stuff. And, um, I really, and I, I, I love the scene when he's telling Simon, like, oh, the dog, it's not that the dog likes me. I just like I feed him bacon treats, but then the dog does like him. And you may feel be- you feel sad for Simon, but you're also like this means that this dog there's some connection there, and you know the dog knew Simon, that deep down. Yeah, yeah. Like, knows that he's a good person. That it's just yeah. a rough exterior for and, sure. And like this is a really I kind of like how much Simon becomes like Melvin a little, like especially in that last scene when you know he has that really great line then. Um, uh, you know, if you're not gonna if you're not gonna go over there, then put on your jammies, and I'll tell you a story. <laughs> it's a really great line, and I feel like that's a uh, that's that's that feels like Melvin's influence of like you know you don't have that you can that sometimes people do need to have that push of a little rudeness because that'll get them moving, and it's it's great to see Melvin on the receiving end of that. Which is great because earlier on, Simon wouldn't have said that to him. Like, Simon tried the confrontation, it didn't work. So, you kind of see them balancing each other out. You know, Simon gets a little tougher because of Melvin, and Melvin gets a little softer because of Simon. So, they're kind of work, you know, they're they're meeting a little more in the middle. They're benefiting each other in that way, which is kind of nice. So, yeah, I really, I really like that, um, that friendship in in the film. Uh, Do you have any like favorite, like favorite little scenes, favorite moments, lines? (laughs) Uh, well, I said, I mean, there's a couple I mentioned, like with him realizing he forgot to lock the door and with the dog. Yeah. And I mean, um, I think just some of the little interactions, I like also the part in the restaurant where he moves tables and he just mm-hmm. doesn't really think twice about it. He's like, oh, I just got to see this dog closer. So he just gets up and moves. And once again, you realize, okay, this wasn't impossible for him to do. He was just stuck in his head. And even Carol's like, oh, okay, you're moving a table now. And she's kind of impressed by it. She's like, oh, he can change. He, yeah. So with just a small little moment and he doesn't even think twice about it or have issues with it. So it's just another one of those little things. that's like, Oh, that, that's a nice little small moment that you notice. But to somebody that's had some of those issues, it's like, wow, that's a big step without him even realizing he's taking it kind of thing. And at the end, right when they walk in the bakery, he finally steps on the cracks in the sidewalk and he notices it. He, he looks back. He's kind of like, Oh, he just kind of shrugs and he walks in. So it's like, yeah. Oh, okay. 
he realizes he can do these things and he's kind of not thinking about them as much, which is what you have to kind of do. So, yeah, I think my favorite scene in the film is um, the thank you note. Uh, for one thing, it's the um, like the. Uh, the part where she doesn't know how to spell the word conscience, I think is really funny. <laughs> but when, um, you know, when she's reading the note to him and at first he's saying, I don't need you to, to read that letter to me. And she kind of just like forces him to hear it. And I think she's doing it for herself because she needs to say all these things. And, um, and it's, I mean, it's another, it's another, it's another display of him taking steps, you know, into becoming more of a human person because, or being more of someone who can relate to humans because he allows her to give him the thank you. And he also sees that that was a, it was a nice thing for him to hear. And I think Helen Hunt's performance in that scene is terrific. I mean, she plays so many different emotions. Like she just has this ability to like play funny and sad or like funny and like pathos at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I think that's like uh, that's probably one of my favorite scenes. I think it's so well written. It's so it's so great and um I there's like a lot of moments in the movie where like someone like doesn't say something like you know, she has a line where he where he when he invites her to the road trip and he says, I need you to do a favor for me. And she just kind of stands there quietly and she's like, "Oh, did I not say what? I meant to say what?" <laughs> Like, there are little moments like that, and I don't know if you've noticed that, but there's also another moment when she comes to his house in the middle of the night in the rain, and um, he's, she's just standing there not, like, um, saying something, and he's like, are you waiting for me to say something? <laughs> I, I, I thought there was a little cute touch about, mm -hmm. like, it feels very authentic to how people talk, where they sometimes are so stunned into silence, or they can't think of what to say, and... Um, I, I really appreciate when movies don't feel too written, you know? Yeah, no, when I totally get it. feels I mean, more natural. Yeah, you, yeah. you totally expect something like this. I mean, like I said, even when I com briefly compared it to Chasing Amy, where yeah. it's all, every single line is pre-planned, every reaction, and which can be fun, but it also isn't realistic because in life there are moments where you don't know what to say or you're, yeah. you're, you're lost trying to find it and and there's awkward and I think a lot of movies shy away from that because they think it's going to look too weird or awkward or the audience is going to pull away but this movie won't prove that it works because I mean that's just how people will sometimes react like I said early on with the phone call where he says oh, I wish I would have danced with you and she doesn't really say anything and she just kind of makes a sound it's like uh, okay and then hangs up, and it, yeah. as opposed to her having this big speech again to him. Right, right. And, and, and to go back to the letter scene, I really like that scene, well, A, because I'm a letter writer, so when I have feelings <laughs> of emotions, I'll write out like 30 pages to people, and they yeah. get annoyed too. <laughs> I, also, I, I also read in the trivia that she did that scene in one take where she literally read like an 18 or 19 page letter wow. all, in, all in one take in that moment, and I guess they just cut the bits they needed. But yeah, it's like, yeah. That's, that's hell on fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> See, she's a legend. She um, is. <laughs> Uh, well, do you have any final thoughts on As Good As It Gets? Um, well, I just would say it's a really good movie. If anybody hasn't seen it, they should watch it. There is some dated out and problematic aspects, too, especially early on with the way yeah. Jack treats characters. And I, I want to say that these days I don't think a character like that would get the chance at redemption. We would just right away say, like, no, he's he's a horrible person. We're yeah. not giving him a chance of canceling him. Whereas in the past, yeah, that stuff is sucks and it's horrible, but at least there's a bit of nuance to it. Like we said... Some of it's him pushing people away. Some of it's something him just trying to get a reaction from people. Yeah. And some of it is him. I mean, he is like 60 years old. He's from a different time. 
it doesn't excuse it, but it just means there's a lot going on, and we do see him trying to get better. So I know there's a big thing online these days. People watch older movies and they right away like, "Wow, this movie's problematic. Has these aspects. So the movie sucks. It doesn't hold up to today's woke standards." And it's like sometimes we got to give those movies a chance because there's a lot more going on than just some of these surface issues that we might yeah, see yeah. with it. And I think it's kind of worth it to be, dive in and realize, well, maybe why is he doing these things? We don't condone the things he's saying, but we want to maybe understand what's going on with him as a whole. Yeah, I and agree. I think yeah. For that. yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this movie is dated, but you also, I, I hope people watch this movie and they might find it dated that they recognize that the first hour of this movie is, is people telling Melvin that he is a terrible person and that he is pushing everyone away. Uh, and, um, you know... Yeah, they, they don't, don't let him get away with it, which yeah, is good. He's a con- consistently, yeah. Yeah, consistently held accountable for his actions. And, um, you know, these people might take the time to help him get better, but they also don't have a lot of patience for him. And uh, so I think it's a re- I think it's a little bit more nuanced. There's a little bit more context there that I hope people can appreciate because I think this movie is um, very funny, very romantic, very uh, compelling, and uh, you have a trio of absolutely fantastic performances. So I'm really yeah. really glad that you mentioned the film and that I could revisit it. Uh, Jason, where can people find you online, and what are you working on these days? Uh, they can find me pretty much anywhere. Just add a dry, cool wit, um, which is a really bad Simpsons reference to bring it back to James L. Brooks. So yeah, they can find me there on Twitter, Instagram, those places. Um, uh, in between going back to film school now, I'm working on a few things. I'm starting up my own podcast, hopefully in the near future. So I'm going to see how that works. I'm going to try and watch a movie from every year of my life that I haven't seen. So... Um, I think I'm starting with American Gigolo on that one, so I'm kind of excited to talk about Richard Gere getting naked in that movie. So So there's that, and I'm I'm putting out random video essays still here and there on my YouTube channel, which I'm hoping to get the next one up in the near future, as long as school doesn't knock me out too much. So yeah. Awesome. Look forward to the podcast and to checking out your videos. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at themanish89. Also, please follow the podcast at ipodsu and remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast to help people find the show. Jason, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much really, for having me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun chatting with you. And listeners, thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Bye.